0: taking it to a do-it-yourself
2: level. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero Show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au. And don't forget, you can also follow us on Twitter at BZETechShow. My name is Natalie Bucknell, and I'm joined today by my co-hosts, Kay Wernigal and Laura Perry. Hi, Natalie.
1: Hi. Hi. Hi, Nett.
2: Hi, Kay. Hi, Laura. Hi, listeners. Today's technology of smartphones has great potential to help us address climate change in many ways. Our guest today, Lily Dempster, will share with us how behaviour science, social media and smartphones can be combined to help us reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Lily is a 28-year-old climate activist from Canberra who has a background combining law and advocacy and has now started a Masters of Energy Change at ANU. She was previously GetUp's Market Impact Director, where she ran clean energy consumer campaigns. At the start of this year, Lily founded the Neighbourhood Effect, which uses behavioural science to help Australians reduce their carbon footprints. The Neighbourhood Effect is currently building a smartphone app to make it easy, social and financially rewarding for people to adopt environmentally sustainable habits and switch to climate-friendly products and services. It's described as a Fitbit for the planet. Hi Lily, welcome to the show and thanks for your time today. Hi, thanks so much for having me guys, it's exciting. We're looking forward to the discussion. So can you kick it off by telling us a bit about yourself and how you got to starting The Neighbourhood Effect?
0: Sure, so uh, I've been working in the environmental movement for uh, some years now uh, and when I was working on clean energy campaigns for GetUp, I was really excited by the... The opportunity in terms of consumer campaigning. So I was running a campaign where we were able to switch about 15,000 people, uh, onto greener electricity retailer, onto a greener electricity retailer and then about 4,000 people onto green power. Uh, green power is a scheme where you can offset your electricity, uh, emissions using renewable energy. And it's a federal and state scheme. Uh, and that was, that impact was actually really significant, you know, a tangible impact above their renewable energy target amount, the equivalent, I think, of about 2 megawatts of additional renewable energy capacity.
2: Which uh, is just fan- from fantastic, those that, that leverage, yeah.
0: Exactly, just from those, those 4,000 people, you know, spending five minutes on the internet and and paying the premium for the for opportunity to offset their emissions. Uh, and that got me really excited. Uh, and I think, at the same time, uh, I'd been looking at behavioural economics uh, and applied psychology for quite a while. I'd, before I was working for GetUp, I was working in government uh, for the Prime mean, Minister and Cabinet Department uh, and I just gotten really, really interested in all of this research on how you can use uh, with these experiments on how you help people change their habits, often very, very cost-effective things through communication strategies. Some of it's called nudge theory. Some of it involves uh, other types of interventions to do with incentives and social normative messages, but just really easy ways to get people to shift their habits when they want to. Uh, and I, I sort of realised that there wasn't really anybody using that amazing research in a way that, that helped people to reduce their personal carbon footprint, despite the fact that we can, if we act collectively, have quite a significant impact. Uh, so that's why I started the Neighbourhood Effect.
2: Terrific. So what, what, what is the Neighbourhood Effect?
0: Yeah, so um, we're, a, we're a really new organisation. I sort of started working on it in earnest at the start of this year. Uh, and our basic premise is just using research from behavioural science to help people reduce their carbon footprint. So at the moment we're building a smartphone application, as you mentioned, uh, and that's going to be catering to the Canberra community initially. Uh, it's the basic features is that, uh, you, you sign in, you do answer a couple of questions. We get a sense of what you're already doing, you know, your lifestyle, your preferences, your household type, which is important. Uh, and then you get a set of tailored suggestions based on what actually suits you in terms of all of the types of things you could do to reduce your personal carbon footprint. Uh, but we give people just a, a one or two or three options at the outset rather than overwhelming them with a the full list. And as you use the application, the suggestions get smarter over time through machine learning algorithms. Uh, and then there are a whole series of other features like scheduling tools, animated guides uh, for particular activities, and links to products services, community initiatives that we've vetted and we recommend uh, that that people take up. Uh, And there's a couple of other things to help people connect to their community, set up micro-sharing economies in their streets. So, you know, it's quite an ambitious undertaking. We're we're developing uh, a minimum viable product, it's called at the moment, uh, through a a new program called Tech Launcher. So we're sort of still early days, but we expect to release it around mid-next year.
1: So, Lily, hi, it's Kay here. Hi, Kay. I was just um, interested with the app. It's for personal use, but then you said it's also for getting communities organised. You've also on your website got a thing called Transition Streets Canberra. Is that connected in any
0: way? Yes, so Transition Streets Canberra... Transition Streets has been around for quite a long time. Uh, It started in the UK. It's sort of an an international movement of people just trying to build community in their street. So I partnered with... uh, a well-known environmental NGO called Sea Change in Canberra, and we redesigned uh, that program and re- released it for free on, on the Neighbourhood Effect website. So it's basically a digital workbook that people can work through in groups, in groups of neighbours or groups of friends, and it sort of covers basic uh, activities in sustainability like waste, water, transport, energy, food, consumer power, different things that you can do, sort of a list of activities that are... That are uh, kind of listing what you can do if, depending on your household type and the level of difficulty and whether you want to save money or if you're happy to spend a little bit. Um, so that was sort of like a pilot for, for the app in some way. We test, we're testing some of the behavioural science common strategies through that uh, digital workbook. Uh, and in terms of the community focus of, of the application, I think one thing I haven't seen anywhere really is, is a service like this that actually ties very closely to local conditions. So wherever possible, we're recommending that people support local environmentally friendly businesses and services, and certainly there's so much happening at the at the local level in terms of, you know, there's repair cafe workshops, um, if you're not sure how to ride a bike, you can go to Pedal Power in Canberra, you know, uh, if you're wanting to set up a community garden, there's already services that do that, there's a fantastic group called Global Warming that picks up, um, you know, leftover compost from groups, so... You know, there's a lot of things that we just wanted to connect people to, and making sure that they were also, you know, talking to one another. There's so much resource efficiency uh, potential when you set up gift and sharing economies as well. So things like, you know, working on your street to set up a, a shared tool shed, uh, doing clothes swap, swapping clothes for free, setting up shared veggie patches. You know, all of the stuff that we can do. It, it's fairly well known. It's more about how do we make it accessible for people and easy. And
1: that's where the behavioural science stuff comes in. Mm, that's fantastic. Um, not you know the least of which it reduces the carbon miles.
0: Yeah. yeah thinking, <laughs> thinking
1: further about the behavioural science, uh, your website mentions the common cognitive and decision making barriers that often make it difficult for us to change our habits when we're short of time and energy. What are some of these barriers?
0: Yeah. So the biggest one that's um, come out of uh, one of the researchers I, I really like is called Dan Ariely. He's an uh, Israeli-American guy. He wrote a book called Predictably Irrational, and he's been quite active in the behavioral economics field for a number of years. So he identifies uh, one uh, cognitive bias, which is basically just part of a preference for the path of least resistance. So if there's any uh, what's called decision-making friction, For example, if you're watching TV and the remote is about two metres away from you, Mm -hmm. some people will just continue to watch the channel that they're on rather than getting up to change the channel, even if they don't like what's on the TV. Um, because it's easier. The it's same with, with, if you're on a website and there's, you have to click through multiple pages to get the information you want. That's a type of friction. It actually has a huge impact on on people's behaviour. Um, you, you make it sound that, and, so
2: lazy, Lily. <laughs> 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 Two but, meters but, and but one but extra
0: it, click. But it, you know, ultimately, that that is how our, how our brains operate, and it's fascinating research in that sense. You know, because once you realise that there are very predictable ways of people people's behaviour that you can kind of in the, in the data and in these experiments okay well how do we design uh, systems to actually work with people's tendencies rather than against path of least resistance is probably the biggest one in terms of getting people to change their habits then there's a whole bunch of stuff around favoring short term gains over over long term benefits that's a that's a really common one uh, then there's the ones that you can work with are people t- have a tendency to move towards a popular social norm so a social norm for example is If everybody around you is eating vegetarian meals, you're probably more likely to start eating vegetarian meals. Lily, we're just having a
1: little bit of trouble hearing you. Would you be able to move your phone a bit?
0: Oh, yeah. Can you hear me now? Ah, that's better, yes. Okay, good. Um, Yeah, so I was just saying this, social normative messages, uh, it's another type of um, response that people have typically. It's quite uh, well represented in behavioral economics research, uh, where if, some people might have on their electricity bill a little table that says, you know, your household on average compared to other households that are similar is, uh, consuming the more or less energy compared to these other households or you're kind of above the majority in terms of your electricity consumption. There's a big study by Opower, uh, an energy company in the US, that used that communication strategy in their billing and they found that many, many people just automatically reduced their electricity consumption to to uh, meet the mean, to, to conform with the social norm that they'd represented. So uh, wow. there's a, a couple like that uh, that that is a fascinating, fascinating research. If people are interested in in behavioural science, there's some really amazing books out there now that are quite um, accessible. Uh, there's a, an economist called Daniel Kahneman who wrote a book, Thinking Fast and Slow, and then I'd also recommend Dan Ariely's uh, Predictably Irrational. Sorry, what was the first one? Thinking Fast and Slow.
2: So how, how can you apply these behavioural science understandings to an app? Yeah,
0: so I think uh, some of it is through that
2: tailoring of suggestions.
0: Uh, so people, again, you're, wherever possible, we're trying to remove decision making friction through the app. So initially we survey people a couple of questions, you know, not too many. They can go back and fill more out later if they want to increase the accuracy of the, of the suggestions that they receive. Um, but that tailoring means that they don't have to do all the work up front to figure out what's going to be suitable for them. We do it for them. Same with product recommendations. We actually go and do the research on what we think is good value for money and has the best environmental credentials. And to be clear, we're not you know, recommending people go out and buy you know, products that they, they don't actually need. It's really things like substituting single-use items uh, and clean tech products. Uh, and connecting them to existing sharing economies. Uh, another feature is a scheduling tool. So, again, helping people uh, set it up in their calendar called implementation intentions. So when you have a plan of when and where and how and who who you're going to do something with, um, you're more likely to, to actually carry it out. Uh, then there's a feature that won't be in the first release, but we're hoping to include, which is sort of making use of social normative messages so you can sort of see... Oh well, my friends. The majority of my friends are doing this activity. Or, for example, it might say, "Oh, you know, seven out of ten people in your in your suburb that using this app did uh, did composting this week." You know, so you get a, a message like that that sort of encourages you to to participate. So that's kind of leveraging that social norm effect.
2: You're getting uh, lots of nods here. It's obviously yeah. resonating. <laughs> yes.
1: Well, peer group pressure is very yes.
0: powerful. Yeah. yeah. well, it's, it's the same way that Facebook works. It tells
1: you that you know this many friends have liked this thing, and so you know. Tweaks your interest?
0: Mm. Yes, but it, so we want to be very transparent about the design from an ethical standpoint. But our assumption is that people using the app actually want to change their behaviour to mm-hmm. reduce their carbon footprint. No, we're not trying to con anyone into it. <laughs> we're trying to make it um, easier for people. And I, I think the other, the other point there is, yeah, just that the behavioural economics um, really does make it make it easier. So I guess the other the other components are trying to not give people too many choices up front, so you know we're sort of saying these are the activities that are best suited for you. Would you like to commit to them? So getting a commitment is another um, is another type of feature that that helps people. Uh, if you actually write down your commitment to do something, that increases the likelihood that you do it. I mean this is again a big experiment because we've taken these. Um, these research findings from behavioral economics, you know, they, they sometimes apply in multiple different types of environments and with different types of behavioral interventions. Whether they apply for every single type of behavior we're suggesting in the app remains to be seen. Uh, and what is the global effect of, of all of these suggestions? And, you know, there's this thing called moral licensing that occurs where if you do something like, um, go for a jog in the evening, you feel so good that you have a big piece of cake afterwards because you say, I deserve it. I went for a jog. And yes. you end up cancelling out the benefits. So, you know, there's there's some really interesting stuff in in psychology and behavioural economics around that effect. It's sort of like a rebound effect. Um, And, you know, really what we'll be doing initially with with the Canberra-based app is just making sure that we have the the mechanisms in place to actually track people's emission reductions, uh, see how engagement is with different parts of the app, and and actually just make sure that it's working. That's really important. We we think, um, you know, we have some really good design features We're trying to have as an empirical uh, methodology as possible, but we we also need to test it. We won't get it exactly right straight off the bat. We need to kind of have a couple of iterations, I expect.
1: Yeah, and you'll work on it. If you've just joined in, we're talking to Lily Dempster, the founder of Neighbourhood Effect, a Canberra initiative that uses the signs of behavioural change and smartphone technology to help reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Now, Lily, my experience with apps is... This is my own personal experience, actually... Is that many of them can be a bit of a fad, so I, I download them and use it for a little while, and then the gloss wears off. Are you um, finding that? Oh, I guess it's a bit early days for you, but how do you think you can overcome that?
0: Yeah, so that's certainly um, in the in the business of app uh, development, which I've been learning a lot about. They call it a churn rate, so it's very high. Um, Yesterday, I was looking at research that kind of put an on, on average globally at about seventy five percent that people download them and then get rid of them within about three months. Um, mm, that is high, so isn't it? yeah, it's surprisingly high um so I think that that's definitely a risk and something we need to make sure we're we're very um, cognizant of when we first release it um, and we can do that through you know a lot of interviews with with early users. Uh, and, and monitoring that and seeing what, you know, looking into the reasons that people might not use it, um, initially. But I think the benefits of using a smartphone app over some other type of, um, mode of communication is that it's right there with you. You know, people use their phone all the time, every day. Uh, and so it, it does feel very personalized and it's, it's individual to you. And the other benefit of the smartphone application is you can use integrations with other apps, apps. Uh, for example, the weather app. So say you've scheduled to ride your bike to work on Wednesday morning, uh, and then you get a message, uh, saying, oh, it's going to be, you know, really sunny and, and 20 degrees, uh, tomorrow on Wednesday, so you should definitely take that ride, you know, and that's from the weather app integration. So, you know, you can get timely prompts that you wouldn't either, otherwise receive. Uh, mm. uh, that's a real benefit. Mm. Uh, and also the, just the ability to really, uh, track the, the, the engagement with the app and make it better over time. It's a much better user experience. Uh, if you get it right with, with mobile applications, fully native mobile applications compared to, uh, some websites, uh, and certainly static digital, you know, communications like the workbook we have with Transition Street is great for a group of neighbours that want to use it, but it, it, it can't cater to their interests. It can't, you can't optimise the content digitally, uh, to cater that, to that specific group just thinking about all,
2: all of those components there's you know, so much in it how, how have you resourced this big undertaking so far?
0: Yeah so at the moment we have a team of about nine people we're all doing it out of the goodness of our hearts at the moment we'll be doing a crowdfunding campaign uh, I think at the start of next year and then we're seeking a lot of funding from venture philanthropists and some government grants and, and community sector grants um, the way that we expect to make make money, enough money to have it uh, be financially sustainable, and then and then scale it if if it's successful, uh, is through two options. One is selling a subscription service to businesses who want to offer it to their customers or staff. so mm-hmm. sort of a reskin version of the app. Uh, if you've got a green business that sort of thinks, oh, it'd be really good, um, you know, given uh, our ideals about. Uh, reducing the impact on the planet, if we could offer this to customers and you know, have their branding, um, many of the same features. Uh, same with green building developers, you know they want their residents to use their their houses in a way that reduces their their bills, uh, and and uses those homes as intended. You know if they've got mandated solar panels and double glazed windows. Uh, so there are a couple of different types of businesses that might be interested in purchasing a version of the app. Um, So that's sort of our our hope. We definitely don't want to do a commissioning model if we can avoid it. A commissioning model is basically where you take um, money from businesses for recommending them just because we want our recommendations to be fully independent. I think that provides much more value to the user. You know, if we partner with businesses, it'll be to provide discounts to users, not for us to take take money.
2: So who's been involved in the app development so far? So we have a
0: couple of computer scientists from ANU specialising in machine learning uh, then there's a, a carbon accountant from a big consulting firm, uh, and myself with my environmental campaigning background, and environmental science major, uh, and graphic designer, user interface designer, uh, so, and some, and the computer scientists have app development backgrounds. so.
1: Have you had challenges getting this across, um, Apple and Android?
0: Yes. Yeah, we want to release to both. Okay. Uh, the, I should mention we also have some really wonderful advisors, uh, including some people from University of Sydney. There's a behavioral, a professor of behavioral economics called Robert Slonim, who's who's been wonderful helping us with the pod project, uh, and also a professor of marketing, Ellen Gabarino. So we have, and some tech, um, tech industry experts as well.
1: And with the um, question Laura just asked, um, you know, obviously the different platforms cause their own challenges. Are there any other challenges that you've come across?
0: Uh, I think in, you know, we're making sure that we set up in a way that actually ensures we can really achieve the impact we're setting out to and that the financial incentives in the organisation are structured to do that. So there's always a risk, you know, I mean I studied nonprofit law, uh, so I think I'm well placed to set up that structure with support with, uh, from a legal firm. Uh, but that's something that I can sort of see happening in other places in the social enterprise space. If I, I, I firmly believe that you actually need uh, an incentive structure and a governance structure in your organisation that is tied to your impact. And if you don't have that, then there are a whole series of other incentives that can come in and, and affect the way you operate. So that was one risk that I feel like is, is fairly well managed in terms of how we're moving forward. I guess, you know, making sure that it works and, and, and making sure that the, the carbon emissions component, the estimates that we have are accurate... So, you know, if there's an Internet of Things and everyone's house, you know, has an inbuilt sensor, um, that would be amazing for this type of product. But Canberra doesn't have smart meters in the home. So, you know, even with partnerships with electricity retailers, you know, on an energy side we're only getting people's quarterly energy data, you know, with their consent, uh and then some data on their product switches through through tagging if we've you know, tagging on a website if they if they purchase a product online. Um so then, you know, how do we estimate uh, the carbon emission reductions and make them as accurate as possible for that person in their home? So that's a big component of work that we're doing at the moment.
2: Yeah, um, that's you know, massive, Setting up
0: a, a greenhouse gas calculation model. There's people that have already done great greenhouse gas calculators, uh, but, you know, setting up a good baseline, especially when you're doing switches uh, between products. So what is the different embodied emissions from, you know, plastic packaged toilet paper to Fully recycled, uh, non-packaged toilet paper delivered in bulk. You know, there's there's different two differences there in terms of the emissions. But how do we make sure that that's accurate for the person? Um, That's something we're working on closely at the moment because the more accurate, the more rewarding it is for somebody. If you have a very general estimate, it's not as exciting as if it's specific to you. Just because of the feedback that you get, you know, you really can can trust that
2: that's that's the impact you're having. So these embodied emissions. Um, how how is the calculation of those differ from typical or usual carbon accounting methodology?
0: Uh, yeah, so this is a really interesting kind of uh, quirk of the carbon accounting system internationally. So generally, greenhouse gas emissions are accounted for at the source, at which they're uh, they're generated. So that means that you know in Australia, the emissions associated with the coal we export to China and India. Certainly there's emissions associated with the mining process that considered Australian emissions, but the coal that's actually burnt in China and India is considered Chinese and Indian emissions. And, and similarly, you know, the emissions that we cause is very different from the emissions we generate. So, you know, there's an argument that in Western economies where we still have extremely high consumption relative to the rest of the world, we've sort of just moved a lot of our the emissions we cause offshore um, into... Developing economies where they do the bulk of the manufacturing of those products. So, you know, when you actually account for the emissions embodied in all the products we choose to purchase, uh, not only do we have really high per capita emissions just in terms of general energy consumption and waste, but also in terms of our material consumption, we're con- contributing a huge amount globally.
2: So yeah, that's a bit, that's a a bit head in the sand, that, isn't it, to just say, oh, oh. We, but we didn't generate those emissions here. So. Yeah, well, it's a great thing in that we're, as individuals,
0: we actually have, and especially as individuals in a, in a very wealthy country, ultimately, we have immense opportunity to use our consumer power to grow the low emissions economy and move away from products that do have very high embodied emissions. The difficulty, I guess, is informational, but it's also all of those behavioural barriers.
1: So in, on your website, you say that um, the household has about 60% of the world's CO2 emissions, and which is quite phenomenal.
0: Yeah, so that's from a twenty fifteen study. Uh it looks at European uh household consumption and associated emissions. Mm. And yeah, they found that it was probably over sixty percent of emissions globally can be traced back to household consumption. Amazing. Some studies put it higher.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, so that's you know, so I think it, incentive it, it,
1: to do something about that.
0: Yeah. yeah it sort of challenges about. the narrative that we we have no where you know we have to have the government acting, and absolutely we do need we need um, you know wide-scale policy reform, uh, and particularly in areas like public transport. You know, if you don't have public transport infrastructure, it's very hard to stop using your car. Um, and there's there's a whole series of other areas where you know we really do need uh, government uh, policy, government-led policy change. But at the same time, there's so much that we can do it as individuals, and it actually is impactful. You know, I think when everyone thinks of themselves as just this one person acting on their own, then it seems demotivating, but you don't realise that you're operating in a, a very large system, uh, and if, if it doesn't even take that many, you know, a couple of hundred people, a couple of thousand people.
2: Yeah, you can have yeah. quite a big impact, and you can have a rapid impact. Well, that that's a really great, hopeful note to finish on today, Lily. Um, just quickly, where can listeners find out more about the neighbourhood effect?
0: So we have a, a website uh, if you want to have a look at us. Uh, we're we're still pretty early on, so you can also check us out on Facebook or Twitter. But uh, on the website
2: uh, Dot au. Thank you. Thanks very much for your time today, Lily. Thanks, Lily. Thanks so much, guys. Lovely to talk to you. Have a good day. The Beyond Zero Thanks. Show is brought to you by the Climate Change Solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network. And if you want to listen to this show or any of the others we've done, then you can go to www.bze.org.au and click on Podcasts. If you enjoy the program and would like to donate, just go to the BZE website and click on that Donate button. Thanks for listening and hope we'll catch you again next week. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. Bze.org.au You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia.